You guys sound really good, just saying. I'm not musical at all, but it sounds nice from up there. And you look good too, well done. Way to come to the temple and just look so great. That's so good. It's not a temple, I'm just kidding. It's a Jewish thing, and I'm not Jewish. I'm going to keep going. So if you've never been here before, you're probably pretty confused after Josiah's announcements and now me saying things about temple. We're a Christian church, just want to clarify, right? We love the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Um, for real though, my name's uh, Michael. I lead that guy who talked about shuttling up a lot. Shuttle up, shuttle up. I, it was a great little sentence. Um, tonight's a kind of awesome night. We're talking about our foundation. So last week, if you were here, we talked about the Bible and why it's foundational, not just to us, but to believers, because it's, it's God's story. And in God's story, we see that he's telling a story of redemption, not just in an idea of redemption, but in a person. And that person's name is Jesus. And Jesus actually shows up in every page of the Bible. You just have to keep looking for him. We learned that's why it's foundational. Tonight we're talking about, it says church. And more specifically, we're talking about community. Because while a, a, a church has a lot of weird preconceived notions that we're going to get to, it's in community that church life happens. And we're talking about babysitting uh, people who we know don't come here on Thursdays because they come Sundays. We're not just a church that exists on Thursdays. If that's all you come for, you're actually missing out. We do life as a multi-generational church. And so when you babysit people, you're helping out the church. There's actually another way and one personal plug that I want to make to you to help your church. And it's uh, every home you and I game. We have been given the privilege to uh, do parking, and you're like, do parking, what does that mean? You literally have to just sit in a car and give the few but the proud Panther fans their tickets to the football games, right? That's it, and actually every salt company uh, in the network does something like this, and I'm about to sell you why ours is the best. Number one, you don't have to touch poop, okay? Salt Company Ames, they do stadium cleanup, they have to touch poop, you guys. I would never do that to you, right? I would never make you touch poop. They have to clean up vomit, right? You don't need that in your life. You might live on a dorm and you see too much of that already. You don't need that in your life. And here's the other thing. I know that uh, although Josiah tried to shame you for it, some of you don't have a lot of money, right? Every time you work a parking shift, you get paid by the hour, minimum wage. And every dollar you get paid goes to Salt Company. And every year they ask me to raise $75,000, right? And a lot of you are like, I don't have that much, but you have like three hours where you could sit in a car with a few of your best friends, play your favorite Drake album, which there aren't very many of those, uh, <laughs> Chance the Rapper all the way. Anyway, so just saying, you can just sit in the car, pass out tickets, and you're helping actually invest in this family, right? And so amongst all the other signups, babysitting, going to Orchard Hill, there's also going to be a sign-up for you to sign up for one of the home games on a Saturday and work a few hours for a parking shift. I'm telling you, it's an easy way to invest in something that you're like, this place means a lot to me. I don't ever want it to stop. Sit in a car for a few hours with your friends and give Panther fans tickets, right? So plug over. Let's go back to talking about church. So the idea of church that I'm talking about, it means as Candeo exists, we're part of a church. Thursday nights, you are part of a church that strives to do life in community. And we need to define those two things because when I say the word church, you probably either think of Cody on a Sunday, good morning church, right? I don't know if you've been here, he does that. He loves all of us and he cries a lot, we've found out. <laughs> or you have a lot of other things come to your mind when you hear the word church, right? 
because there's a lot of really good things, a lot of really messed up things and in between that people who say they're part of our church have done, right? If you've heard of a group called the Westboro Baptists, they claim to be a church. And part of what they do as a church is they picket soldiers' funerals and they spew hate at homosexuals, which Jesus would never do, right? You might have that when you think about church. You might actually just begin to think about stiff pews, maybe prayer breakfasts or egg bakes at your Lutheran church, which are delicious. Or you could have grown up in a church where you regularly pray to Jesus' mom. I don't know where you're coming from and what church was like for you. You could even have in your mind the idea of a church is a really sexy mega pastor who somehow went from like 170 pounds to 200 pounds of pure muscle with a spray tan and $5,000 shirts with a private jet, right? You might think of church in a lot of different ways and a lot of those things actually can make you pretty skeptical. A lot of the ways you think about church can actually make you really confused, but what's probably true of a majority of this room is somehow when it comes to church, you've been Catholicized, Methodized, Lutheranized, and all of you, whether you've ever gone to a church or think about a church, have been absolutely uh, influenced by one thing, and that's the Western culture that you live in, right? All of us have been Westernized when it comes to how we view church and so much of the other things that happen in our lives. See, here's what's true is, The Western world is built on this individualistic, consumer-based, and entertainment-focused world, right? All of us live in that reality, this individualistic, consumer-based, entertainment-focused world. Most of you ask the question, what can I get when you go to church? Not, what can I give? This again, it's like a bowl of Rice Krispies is up here with me, you guys. (laughs) Drives me crazy. It's like we stare at a menu at McDonald's when we think about what church we want to go to. What can I get from it? How will it satisfy me? And is it entertaining? Church just becomes another stop at a drive-thru where you attempt to feed your soul. And I'm telling you right now, the church is not a product. It's not a place. And it's not a thing. That actually flies in the face of what it was supposed to be about in the first place. Church is not just a place that you go on a Thursday or a Sunday. Yes, you do that when you're part of a church, but that's actually the easiest part when it comes to church, is going to the place where we all sing and listen to a sermon. See, church is actually supposed to be so much more than that. It's supposed to be a group of people that represent something. Like I said, not just on a Thursday or a Sunday, but they represent someone through the week in the mundane and everyday stuff of life. That's actually where the church lives and breathes and does what it was called to do. So I'm going to try to fly through a bunch of Bible really quick to kind of paint a picture, honest and kind of a sober picture of what the church actually is, how it started, and why it's even here. And I want to start by taking you to John 17. It's not going to be on the screen, and I'm not really going to quote it word for word, but what's happening is Jesus is about to be handed over to the Jews and Romans to be tortured and put on a cross. But before he does that, he's in a garden alone with his disciples and he begins to pray. And he actually, in his prayer, begins to pray for all of you and for anyone who in the future would begin to follow him. And he kind of says this interesting thing. He prays to God and says, I pray that they would be one, that they would be unified so that the world may believe in me, okay? So when Jesus prays that John 17 prayer, what he's saying is, I want the people who say they follow me to seem so unified and so together that when the world sees how they live, they would believe that I'm real. 
And then if you continue through the New Testament, you begin to see letters that were written to different kinds of churches. And the Apostle Paul, guy who met Jesus on a road, we'll talk about him in a few weeks. In Ephesians chapter 2, he said, chapter 2, verse 19, he says this about what you are when you're part of a church. He says, you're no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. So you're this people from a, the same country or nation. You have the same ethnicity all of a sudden when you're part of a church, and you're part of a family. And so see, the church is, supposed to re- is meant to represent the unity, love, story, and intimacy of God, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, this, this incredible kind of unity that they have, and they're supposed to do that as a family on mission to help in the adoption of more siblings through the grace that's offered in the death and resurrection of our older brother, Jesus. The church is meant to represent the unique relationship that God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit had, and then what they did through Jesus to save people. And if it's supposed to be that kind of family, what you can actually begin to do is get really frustrated, or at least I do. And you begin to point the finger at the Western church and at just the church as a whole when you think about it. Because there's like 80 different denominations, right? Actually more than that. That seems like a really dysfunctional family, right? We can't even agree on a few things that keep us together and so we all just split. You wouldn't call that a healthy family. You'd say something was wrong with that if you couldn't be in the same place or find common ground. What in the world went wrong? You have to ask the question, has the church always been a mess? Has it always been this way? Where did it start? And you can go to Acts chapter two in verse 42 to find out how it started. And I'm gonna read that to you. So this is like the first gathering of the first ever church. This is what it says about them. It says in verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and they had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. That sounds just like the happiest little hippie commune, doesn't it? You need anything, man? Let me give you that. You need a bicycle? You need a thing of ramen? I'm trying to contextualize it to you guys, right? just seems like they just, they just loved each other, you know? You need something? Come hang out with me. Let's just do life together. Some of you are so introverted, you're like, that many people in one place? Get me out as fast as I possibly can. But you see this, and you, you remember, okay, he gave the church an incredible job, and it seems like they began to do that in those opening verses, to display God's beauty and tell his story as his bride, to be this witness. And you read that, and you seem to see them getting along so well, and maybe it just actually makes you more discouraged. Because the church doesn't look like that at all, or at least it doesn't sound like that very often. And we become even more critical, and I think here's why. We love to idealize everything, right? So we love nostalgia. Here, I'm gonna explain it to you. We just, we love to idealize things, and what that does is it doesn't actually like let us see things for what they really are. We kind of make them magical. So like think of your favorite movie when you were seven. I don't know if you've ever done this, and I wouldn't recommend it unless you wanna have a really bad night. Go watch it again, right? And you just go, I laughed at that? 
And maybe some of you are like, it was a Disney classic. Mine, it's the Power Rangers, okay? So the original live-action Power Rangers, eight-year-old me is like, this is incredible. And I couldn't even make it through five minutes. I was like, teenagers don't look like they're 35, and they don't even act this badly in real life, and I had to shut it off. It kind of ruined it for me. I had idealized in my mind the Power Rangers movie. And then when I went to watch it again, I was like, actually, it just wasn't that great. And here's something I've noticed Christians tend to do when they read the Bible. They tend to read the Bible with this like happy Sunday school vibe to it. Like nothing was ever really that bad and everyone loved each other. But in Acts chapter two, it's just the beginning of the church. If you were to flip three chapters over, Acts chapter five, what you'll actually find is two people die in, because they sin. Ananias and Sapphira, sounds like a really scary church. Imagine if some of you tonight, you told a lie to your friend and you just dropped dead right there. And Josiah just came and had to wrap your body and drag you out of church. I don't think you'd come very often, right? But we think, look at this incredible church. They're sharing everything. It's so awesome. I love it. And then three chapters later, you guys, what happens? Sinners sin. That's what this church was. This church was filled with flawed individuals prone to sin and yet saved by grace. That's what's true. And what's true of that church, even in the beginning, what seems so great is the same thing that's true of this church. In any church you're ever going to be a part of, you're going to be in a place with flawed people prone to sin who are saved by grace. We do this with the, the apostles, too. I love to think about this. Like, if you think about it, you think, did the apostles just walk around, like, arm in arm, taking notes and everything Jesus said while they fed children and pet lambs? Like, I just think that's how we view it. Like, they must have loved it. They were with Jesus. Guys, they probably fought all the time. Peter was a loudmouth who even got called Satan by God himself once. Thomas, he was like this skeptical doubter. He'd probably like not really believe anything and then blog about it. Just not a good guy. Matthew, the tax collector, he was a Jewish guy who started working for the enemy. And then there was this other guy, Simon. He was, or he was this zealot. What he basically did is he'd wear heavy cloaks, put daggers in his arms, and he'd go trying to kill Roman officials. Do you think him and Matthew got along all the time? No. But we idealize this group, and when we read the Bible, we tend to idealize these things and think they must have had a great time, and we forget they're the same flesh and blood that you and me are. So before we go pointing fingers at the churches we're a part of, we should kind of point the mirror at our own hearts. Instead of asking, what can the church give to me? We should begin asking the question, what can I give to the church? Knowing it's not going to be perfect and admitting that it's going to be flawed, how can I be a part of representing the beautiful story of Jesus. And every letter in the New Testament, except maybe one or two, is written to a church that had serious problems, whether personally, relationships in there, or things they were believing. Like, they were writing letters be not because everything was great, but because things had gotten kind of crazy. And so we can't idealize these things that we read in the Bible. We can't idealize something that was not ideal. And here's kind of what's true about Salt Company. Salt Company, you're four years or five if you take a victory lap like I did. It's kind of like a greenhouse, okay? It's almost like the ideal environment to be a Christian in because you have weird pockets of time where you can sleep for a few hours or you can play Fortnite for a few hours. I don't know what you guys do. It's this place where you can constantly call your friends and even if it's like midnight, they're down to hang for the next six hours. And it's incredible because once you have children, you can't do that. Hold on to it as long as you can, okay? But we live in this kind of ideal, or you live in this kind of ideal place, and I did too when I was in Salt Company, where 
Christianity at times, it just feels like candy land. And I'm not saying you don't go through hard things and I'm not saying that you don't suffer, but I think you can believe that this is how it's always supposed to feel and that you're always gonna be this on fire. And it's not that as you get older, you get less on fire. It's actually that you become more steadfast and consistent in your walk. But I'm telling you, the reason that we don't just do this on Thursday nights and actually want you to come on Sundays is because you need older saints. You need moms and dads. You need people who are a little bit ahead of you to continue to help you once you leave kind of these four years and while you're in these four years. Salt Company, I'm telling you, following Jesus, for many of you, it's as easy as it's ever going to be while you're in college. And that's not to scare you away, because Jesus doesn't become less faithful, right? But it's just the truth, and I don't want you to walk out of college and suddenly be like, why is this so hard? I don't understand. It's to recognize your circumstances have changed. And so we don't want you just coming on Thursdays. We want you to be a part of everything this church does. But here's the problem. Our generation is in serious danger of losing the very essence of what makes a church a church and what makes life and community possible. And here's why. Church involves human contact, right? It involves human contact. If you look at the language in Acts 2, you begin to see that they were together all the time. You can't break bread over FaceTime and share it. I mean, you could separately do that. I know some of you long-distance couples do weird things like that, but that's okay. It says all the believers were together, so they had to be in the same place. It says they sold property and possessions. They gave to people in need. Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. There they go, breaking bread in their homes. The church involved human contact. It involved relationship. And see, it's not just... the the generation out there, it's actually Christians too are suffering from this. Recently, there was a poll taken. How many people would prefer discipleship on their own, regular members of church, like who go to church all the time? 45% of Christians in America said, I'd rather do this Jesus thing by myself. I would prefer if no one else was a part of it and I could just do it alone. And human contact, even for the most introverted of you, is absolutely essential to who you are. You're a relational creature because you were made in the image of a relational God. You need relationship to thrive. You need relationship to grow. It's absolutely a part of what it means to represent God as a member of his church. Jesus called the disciples into community, knowing it wouldn't be pretty, but knowing it's what they needed. And see, we're more connected than ever over the internet and yet more disconnected in person. It's actually the loneliest anyone has ever been right now, and yet we seem to continue to stack up followers and friends online. I mean, most people walk to class, you see it with heads bowed down, staring at their phones and earphones in, not usually talking to anybody, but actually trying to avoid talking to anyone at all costs. Connection through a fiber optic cable cannot replace relationships that can only be formed through flesh and blood. It will never happen. And community or church, by God's definition, is actually critical to you flourishing in the way of Jesus. And here's how I would define it. If I were to define what is community, it's a group of people bound together by Jesus who live side by side and are completely known and yet completely loved. And that's the scary part right there at the end. The thing that we're losing by feeling more disconnected 
and by the culture that we're swimming in is this idea of being completely known because we're absolutely terrified that when people know who we really are, they won't love us and they'll run from us. But I'm telling you right now, I've never met someone who said they followed Jesus and avoided community on purpose and actually made it out alive or thrived in their relationship. And so my plea to those of you who come in and out every Thursday and you're unknown is not to make you feel bad, but to let you know you're not fooling anybody, maybe just yourself. And my heart hurts for how incomplete and alone I believe you are. And I'm telling you right now, you're essentially rejecting Jesus's request to heal you and make you whole because you cannot do it alone. There's no such thing as a healthy follower of Jesus who's not vitally connected to relationships within a local church. And it's not fair to just beat up on the people who come in and out because there are some of us who come here every week and are never going to miss a connection group and are always going to be at every retreat. And yet there's parts of you that nobody knows about and you prefer it that way. And you're in danger too of missing the very essence of what it means when we talk about church and community because that whole being known we absolutely crave but I think we're all so afraid that in being known we won't be loved and it's not just a Christian thing either either you know like either that sounds weird your need for relationship everything Jesus teaches is not just for a Christian to be a great Christian actually everything that Jesus teaches is for a human being to actually be human the way they were always meant to be it's not just for Christians, it's for human beings to feel like humans again. That's what he's asking us to fall into. And all of us long for the ability to be ourselves, totally open, even if it's not totally put together or that great. But we're told that we should be afraid of anyone knowing who we really are. It's culturally perpetuated, right? We're all about the image we present to the world. The low-hanging fruit, it's Instagram, right? All of us put like the best photo we have. I'm never gonna put a photo or a video of me disciplining my kid or yelling at her, right? I'm never gonna post, had to discipline Finley today, three spanks in, here we go. Because <laughs> somebody would call DHS and I might get an email for saying that on stage already, but I'm telling you, or I don't go, hey, you would not believe what I just said to my wife. I'm gonna repeat it in a video on Instagram, right? <laughs> we don't do that. You don't choose the day that you're only wearing your grout fit to post your selfie or like the full length picture, right? It just doesn't happen. It's not how it works. Or like the first day of school, or at least in middle school and high school, I don't know if you were like me, I'm a little bit conceited. I would think about the outfit I was putting on, right? Like I would think, what should I wear? And it didn't work, I was still a giant loser, but we moved on. <laughs> or like first dates, I don't know a lot of first dates where the guy just goes, you would not believe the gas I have <laughs> right there. Right? Or the girl going, it took me three hours to get ready for this thing, and it's going to be like that every day of your life if you marry me, right? It doesn't happen that way. We don't do that. You don't tell them, you would not believe how selfish I am or how quick-tempered I can be. Oh, you would not believe. We don't say that. Job interviews, you don't tell them how much you need coffee in the morning to function or how badly you wish you could just cut corners, close Excel, and sit on the internet while you're at your job. You don't say that. We think we have to be the most presentable selves to form real relationships or actually be loved. That's what the world is telling us. And I think this is actually doing us so much more harm than it is good because to be completely known requires us to share who we really are, even the stuff we wish no one else knew. 
And it's not just important to your relationship with others, but it's absolutely vital that you operate that way in your relationship with God. So here's what I wanna do with the rest of our time. I want us to go and see why community matters and how on the other side of our fear is actually something very beautiful. So in the book of 1 John, verses five through nine, we're gonna see that Jesus is going to debunk our fears and give us freedom. You know, Jesus never tells us to be real about who we are so he can shame us. He never tells us to be real about who we are so he can make us feel guilty. He always calls us to be who we really are and be honest about it so he can make us feel free. That's how Jesus operates and that's who he is. And so it says this in those verses, 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. I got to keep rolling so you'll get there. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light and there's absolutely no darkness in him. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet we walk in darkness, we're lying and are not practicing the truth. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So we'll unpack maybe that confusing poetry, but here's what you need to know. The author is using these stark images of light and darkness to represent God and anything not God. Darkness and light, they can't coexist. Whenever light enters a room, it actually scatters and rids the room of as much darkness as possible. When you think about darkness, it's probably where you hide and light is what we use to see. And what you see as you already look at verse six of this passage is that before you ever have a problem with someone else, if you hide and are not yourselves, you'll actually affect your relationship with God. Verse six says, if we say we have, not, we, we have fellowship with him and yet we walk in darkness, we're lying and are not practicing the truth. I'm gonna live in authenticity right now. My voice cracked and it totally freaked me out right there. Wow, that was insane. So living in the light, trying to be authentic, trying to be an example to you, okay? Just doing my best. It says, if we say we have fellowship with him, it's saying if you say you know God and you follow God and yet you walk in darkness, you keep parts of your life secret. It says you're a liar and you're not practicing the truth. It's saying you cannot have a healthy or real relationship with others if you do not first have that with God. And the truth is, if you are not honest with God, you can never be honest with other people. And what we hear is maybe that lie that culture likes to spread, that you need to be perfect or behave perfectly. And I wanna debunk that right now. What this says and what we believe, what this what this goes after, what we believe is that God and others expect and require our perfection or our good side to accept us and have a relationship with us. And that's whack, okay? That's not what this says. I would never require my daughters to clean up their rooms before I told them I loved them, right? I would never say, well, if you clean up your act, then I'll begin to love you. That's never how that works. I'm always gonna have love and affection for them. But if I were to walk into the room and it's a mess and they go, isn't it clean? we're gonna have a problem, right? There would be brokenness between us because I would clearly see that's not true. What are you talking about? Your room is a mess. And see, verse six is not saying you have to be perfect or your room needs to be clean. It just means you have to be honest if it's really messy. God is not afraid of your mess. It's actually the thing he came for. He's not intimidated by your sin. He can conquer it like that. 
And it's assuming this tendency to walk in the darkness. We all want to do it. But it's not assuming that we need to live a perfect life. It's actually saying the opposite. If we're walking in darkness and pretending we're just fine, that's the problem. God actually just wants us to be vulnerable. And then he wants us to be honest, not to be perfect. Verse 8 calls that out again. It says, if we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. And then verse 10 kind of gives it the knockout blow. If we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. The Christian life is not one of perfection, but of honesty and openness. Honesty and openness. There's no such thing as a sinless Christian, so welcome to the family. There's no such thing as a sinless Christian. It just means being forthcoming about sin, but not just sin, insecurity, about doubts, about questions that we have. Don't pretend to be okay if you're not okay. But, okay, it's not just airing your dirty laundry, right? It's not just saying, look, my underpants stink. I haven't washed them in a month. It's admitting they really do smell. It's terrible. Because there's also this misconception that it's just admitting that we're doing wrong things. And I'm telling you right now, guys, take a tip. If you're ever mean to your wife someday, if God's uh, nice to you and gives you one, if I was mean to my wife and I just went, hey, I was mean to you, you know what she would do? She'd stare there and go, yep, you need to keep going, right? It's not enough to be like, I really love to do coke. Like, it's my favorite thing, gets me hyped. It's like, just saying that you're doing something is not actually admitting that it's wrong. See, the thing about living in the light, it's not just like, I love drugs. It's actually saying, and I know they're bad, and I should give them up. See, verse 9 calls it, the Christian word is confession. Confession. If someone gives a confession of a crime, they're actually admitting that they're guilty. It's implied in the word. So you can't just go to small group and be like, guys, I had 30 beer bongs the other weekend, and I'm still alive. It was wild right? You would never do that, I hope. It's walking in or it's meeting up with a friend and saying, I did this and I don't want to, or it's alone with God after you failed, not acting perfect, but being honest. God, I sinned against you. I'm sorry. It was wrong. So it's not just the admission of the things we do, but the confession, admitting our guilt, admitting we shouldn't do it, and then wanting to walk away from it. But there's also this thing that happens, and in verse 7 and 9, it talks about it. It talks about this idea of cleansing. And the only, like, category I have for cleansing is when celebrities do, like, juice cleanse. I don't know if you guys, you know, like, to get rid of the toxins. My cleanse is called the Chick-fil-A cleanse. Every chance I get, I eat Chick-fil-A. And I feel great. So if you want to try that out, just go for it. Never had any problems. Feel really Christian and American all at the same time. But there's like confusion. Okay, so it cleanses us. So does that mean like every time we confess, that's when we're forgiven? No, no. So cleansing and forgiveness, it's not the same thing. God forgave you once when you said, I need you, right? But, so it's not that you have to be forgiven all over again, but what it does is it unclogs the pipes, right? And here's the reason I kind of talk about that is we have this tendency to, my friend David Livingston told me this and he's very right, We have this tendency in Christian circles to vaguely confess things. And if you are vague in your confession, you'll feel like you have a vague sense of forgiveness or cleansing. Like if 
if you don't admit the whole thing or the, the total truth, it's almost like you didn't get the root of a weed and it's just gonna grow back again. And so if you struggle with purity in your relationship, it's not just saying, yeah, me and my girlfriend really messed up. It's saying whatever really happened in full detail. And it's not just to be like, I can't believe that. Like, oh my gosh, that's so gross. No, it's because you need to clean out your heart and you need to be real because otherwise you don't get at the root of what's happening and it'll probably just sit in there. And here's what happens. Whenever you hide things from people, it dramatically affects the relationship you have with them, right? And it does that with God too. Sin clogs up our ability to connect first with God and then with others. The worst thing in, for your relationship with God and others is hidden sin or guilt. And when you hide things, that's the thing that right before you go to bed, you're reminded that you haven't told anyone. That's the thing that whenever you walk in here, constantly flashes in front of you so you can't pay attention. You're not supposed to feel that way. Confession is never meant to shame anyone. It's always meant to free them. Jesus consistently asks for our confession so that he can give us our freedom. That's what it's about. God wants us to live lives with clean consciousness, in the light, not perfect behavior, but he wants us to feel free. We talked about this last spring. You're not supposed to feel burdened all the time living a Christian life. It doesn't make it easy, but you're supposed to feel free. And some of you kind of live like there's this weight on your chest. And if you would just confess, you could breathe deeply again, maybe for the first time in a long time. And living this way, so in this pattern of confession, God begins to remove those things from our life. We begin to feel free. And that is the only way we can experience what the Bible is calling fellowship, which is their fancy word for community. And this idea of fellowship, like what is fellowship. It's, it's life together, which is another Christian buzzword, but it's, it's Acts 2, this demonstration, and it's John 17, this representation of who Jesus is, what it's like to be in relationship with him, and then it says something to the world, but it can't happen if we're not living in the light. And here's kind of the best part. What makes this unlike any other group in the world or that you could be a part of is the person that it's oriented around and how you got in. So the person it's oriented around and how you got into this fellowship makes it unlike anything else because the person, his name is Jesus. And how you got in, by admitting you couldn't do it yourself. The person is Jesus and the way you get in is admitting you could never get in on your own. You confess your inability. And Jesus, the very reason he's that person, the thing that binds us together, is because the, the first thing in how you got in is that you were broken. It's actually when you confess that you're not perfect and you're free about how you can't do it, that makes you a member of his family. And that should be the thing that keeps us from living in the shadows. I think so many of us think we have to clean ourselves up or begin to look like we deserve it. And he did not come and die for you because you could somehow eventually do it. He actually knew the whole time it would be impossible unless he did it for you. That's the gospel. We are all really imperfect children who don't do the right things, but I just don't know if we all believe this. I think some of you sit here and some nights think, I've gotta be the only screw up. 
I've got to be the only person who failed again and again and again this week. And I think that's another thing that keeps you in the dark. It's the comparison game, right? Because you see down the row that girl ugly crying for Jesus during What a Beautiful Name. You know, like Stephanie's just getting it. She's just like, yeah. And you're like, I've never looked like that at church and I've never cried that hard. Goodness gracious, I don't know what to do. And then what you do is you begin to feel self-conscious. Like, is there something wrong with me? Am, am I missing it? Am I really that total screw up? But I'm telling you right now, I bet the reason that she's ugly crying is because she knows how messed up she is, and yet she feels the overwhelming and unchanging love of God for her. Because she's just as messed up as you are, right? Guys, it's what makes Christian community beautiful. It's what makes this whole thing the church, is that you're not the only giant screw up in the room. I am too but we've all been given the same grace. The person sitting next to you is an absolutely total failure, no offense. But when you stop worrying about impressing everybody, and when you stop comparing yourself to the person next to you, and you begin to recognize, wait, how did you end up here? Oh, you heard that it had nothing to do with what you did, but with what he did. Oh, you're open about who you are because you realize that's not what defines you, but what Jesus did defines you. Then something begins to happen. It's called the church. Then community begins to flourish. And it's not just, hey, you're a mess too. Like, if you had fallen into a pit, let's say you're Andy Dwyer, you fall right into the pit and you get out of the pit and you see Tom Averford's heading right for the pit, and you go, hey, Tom, don't go in the pit. It's not bad that you said you shouldn't go in that place. I think a lot of us think that we shouldn't be called out for our sin. No, your friend's loving you if they tell you what you're doing is stupid, okay? They need to do it lovingly and not like that. But it's not just, hell, oh, we're all a screw up. It's, hey, I don't want you to screw up anymore. We shouldn't have to do that anymore. Let's keep each other accountable. Let's walk together. You should be challenged to change here. You should be encouraged to grow. And it's not also just sin. It's loving each other, serving each other. It's helping them move. Like 35 of you came to help me move. The rest of you didn't show up, and I know who you are, okay? It's making them meals. It's being in a room when someone they love dies, and what they don't need is words. They just need you to be there. That's the church. That's fellowship. It's people you worship with, you laugh with, you listen to, you pray with. It's who you are human with, okay? And so here's the beautiful thing, is if that begins to happen, we begin to walk in the light and live in the light, not living perfectly, but living honestly. We will begin to do the thing Jesus told us we would do. John 13, 35 says this, by, by this, your love for one another, your love for one another, everyone will know that you are my disciples. If you love one another, everyone will know that you are my disciples. Do you know how many people you sit next to, that you walk by, that you live with, that are desperate to just feel known and loved? And what Jesus says is if you begin to live in the light, and if you begin to live as the church, not just a place you go, but a people that you are, I can use that to help give other people the thing that they are so desperate for in searching in places that they will never find it. We are called to show them 
this love, and it's got to be more than just showing up on Thursdays, right? Or being there on Sundays, right? And this life, this whole thing, it's only possible because of Jesus. That's the only way. Because in a world covered in darkness, the light appeared. And that light took all the things that kept us from being able to be totally known upon himself so that you and me could come home. So that we could be in the light that we were made to live in again. And tonight, Jesus is holding out his hand. And he's saying to you, come into the light. You don't have to hide. I don't want to make you feel guilty. I want to make you feel free. And if that's something you want, you just have to take his hand. You just have to say yes. And then he wants you to walk out that door or that door, and he wants you to offer it to others, whether it's the fifth grader at Orchard Hill or it's the family who's coming to Candeo and isn't quite sure if they want to do this Jesus thing, but that college student who keeps showing up, there's something about them and the way they talk to their friends that I want to know more about. It's the people on your floor. It's the people you live with. It's the people in your class. The way we live together can change the world, and it can represent Jesus. And so let's take his hand and bask in the glory and warmth of his light, knowing we are total screw-ups, and yet we are totally loved. Let's worship him for that. Jesus, it is so good to know that despite everything I'm ev I've ever done, every reason I have to hide in the dark, I don't have to hide. Not because of anything I was able to accomplish or earn, but because of everything you did. That I can be back in your presence, that I can finally live in the light where I can say exactly who I am, even the stuff I wish no one in this room would know. And your love does not change. And that somehow that begins to change the way we interact with each other. We live in a world so hungry for love and acceptance. And we live in a world where they're finding that in things that are only gonna leave them more and more broken. And so tonight, would you change us? Would you call those who have been in darkness to be in the light? And then would you make Salt Company and Candeo Church a church that doesn't fight to have the loudest music or the best teaching or the most relevant anything, but instead would you make us a ministry and a people and a place that when they talk about us, they say they love each other. And I want to be there and I want to know why.